These gentlemen have a special interest in Navarone. We picked you up on radio, of course, but perhaps you could be a little more specific now. I'll be specific. As you can plainly see, it was bloody awful. Squadron leader Barnsby's Australian. But we'd love to go back. Wouldn't we, boys? Sure. Just as soon as we can, but... Only on one condition. We want the Joker who thought this one up to come along with us. And when we get there, we're going to shove him out at 10,000 feet without a parachute. As bad as that. Bad? It can't be done. Not from the air, anyway. You're quite sure about that, squadron leader. This is important. So is my life. To me, anyway. And the lives of these jokers here. And the 18 men we lost tonight. Look, sir. First, you've got that bloody old fortress on top of that bloody cliff. Then you've got the bloody cliff overhang. You can't even see the bloody cave, not alone the bloody guns. And anyway, we haven't got a bloody bomb big enough to smash that bloody rock. And that's the bloody truth, sir. Hey everybody, welcome back to Uncanny Cinema. We've got a war, action, adventure, kind of drama film to go here. Um, sort of a men on a mission movie, if you want to like put it in the box. I think it probably best fits. Definitely could be considered a war film set during World War II. We are looking at The Guns of Navarone. And it stars Gregory Peck. David Niven and Anthony Quinn are our main characters and came out in 1961 and it's based on a fairly, or I would say a pretty famous book of its day, of the same name, uh, by Alistair McLean and he had written a lot of other war books. I, I think they primarily focus on World War II but he might have expanded as his career went along. He might have gotten into Korean War and stuff like that, I'm not entirely sure. But I know the bulk of his books and like the, the more famous ones focus on World War II. It was directed by J. Lee Thompson, who had a lengthy career with a lot of adventure films. So he did the great, great thriller Cape Fear, the original before um, Martin Scorsese redid it in the 90s. He did one of the best Planet of the Apes movies, which is the fourth one, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. And he did what is arguably the worst Planet of the Apes movie with Battle for the Planet of the Apes, um, you know, not counting the Tim Burton one. And uh, he also did some horror films, The Reincarnation of Peter Proud and Happy Birthday to Me, which was like an 80s slasher. Uh, the movie itself, this one was written by Carl Foreman, who is notable for writing High Noon and Bridge on the River Kwai. And both he and Thompson had a lengthy career in film, and they worked on a lot of other projects. These are just some of the more notable ones that I pulled out there. And Alistair McLean, uh, I mentioned him. He also wrote Ice Station Zebra, Where Eagles Dare, When Eight Bells Toll, and many other books. All of those that I named were made into films, and Where Eagles Dare is a, kind of an early Clint Eastwood movie during World War II. They were all like pretty popular in their day. The Guns of Navarone itself was, I would say, quite popular in its day, was very successful in its day. And I'll say that it's a little different for us 
because you know usually we're looking at uh, the last Jedi notwithstanding our previous episode usually we're looking at things are a little bit more off the beaten path and in many cases they're things that were not financially successful in some cases they weren't critically successful but the Guzzard Navarone was both um, the reason I picked this one is I feel that it's kind of a movie that if you know if our dads or grandfathers went to the movies they would know this movie and grew up with it and probably saw it on turner classic movies and like oh guns and averone okay but for anyone in their 20s 30s maybe the 40s and then like anyone younger than that they are not going to have any fucking clue what the guns of Navarone is i feel it's just it's not famous and it's not a classic i feel to the level of it's not Citizen Kane. It's not Chinatown. It's not It's a Wonderful Life. It's not something that even if you haven't seen it, people are constantly talking about it and you've heard about it. So while this is a successful film, I think kind of the age of it um, has buried it somewhat uh, similar to when we did back uh, the film A Face in the Crowd is considered a classic film and it's, it's fantastic, but it's not one that is super famous and is talked about much out of outside of film circles so that's what the guns and everyone i feel kind of is is sort of like a you know an, an un, a gem to be uncovered to a degree all right so we'll dig into some more aspects about the movie coming up but first i will introduce our panel we have uh two guys returning from our beast of war right you're both on that yep yeah okay i thought so so uh so our last war film a few episodes back we did the beast or the beast of war and uh so we've got a couple guys joining us originally we were going to have uh somebody else on there but he couldn't make it so we have uh we have jimmy coming back you and jimmy you were just on our last one for the last jedi i know uh piling them all up at once yeah and we've got uh, Devin coming back. Devin, you've been on The Beast of War, and you were on Robot Jocks. Robot Jocks. Overall, I'd say this one uh, skews more toward the Robot Jocks end of the, the spectrum between the two. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, I will say, uh, I, you know, you're getting you're getting me and Devin, and we're both on both of those podcasts. I'd say, I don't know, dynamic duo. Yeah. Yeah, Calls back for every war movie. Yeah, just just keep Doug out of the mix, and we're good. Although this one lacks Soviets, which is like kind of the theme of Devin's lately. Yeah, but that's what Nazis. I show up for. We get Nazis, <laughs> Nazis, Soviets. Hey, all right. Uh, and back once again, our last episode, we debated on who actually held the title of most appearances to date. And the winner of that was Eric by uh, one or two, I believe. And this this one's going to to help further his score as well. Oh, I don't see Jack here, so this puts me two ahead now, officially. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, I think she's she's on uh, at least one coming up, but uh, yeah, we'll see. So yeah, uh, Eric and Jack now have a uh, a rivalry over appearances on the podcast, which now I have to take into account and think about every time I select someone. And uh, we'll see where this uh, shakes out in the future, if, if Eric can maintain his lead or if uh, Jack is going to overtake him. So stay tuned for that. All right, I'll be but... curious to see which one of you two ends up being the Tanya Harding and tries to uh, <laughs> lead pipe the other one's name. 
I, it would be her throat, so she couldn't speak on the podcast. Not her. No, I think one of you just wouldn't be thinking it through, and then no, oh, you can still have a bum me in, in podcast. Just grimacing through the whole thing. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. Eric is going for Jack's throat. <laughs> if it comes to that, I'm normally a, a peaceful guy, so. What he means is he's too ahead right now. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason for that. All right. So uh, we're going to dig in here on the guns of Navarone. I'll say the kind of basic structure of the plot. Like I said, it's a men on a mission movie. And you have Gregory Peck as sort of the point man of the film. And he is to lead a crew of soldiers in World War II to an island in uh, like one of the, the Gresham. Is that how you uh, conjugate that? Gresham Island? I don't know. Nobody, yeah. none of you know either. Greek right. island. <laughs> yeah, but there's there's a way that you work. conjugate Greek. Yeah. Okay, um, but Greco? so uh, a a Greek island, we'll say uh, they have to go to a Greek island, Navarone, which is totally fictitious. It was made up by the author of the book, and then they carried it over into the film. But it is a fake island that has like rocky cliffs. And it has these two gigantic guns, like cannons, but they're much longer than cannons and kind of look almost literally like gigantic guns in a cartoony way <laughs> instead of cannons. Um, and they are sort of like built into this cliffside and protected by this the cliff. And then inside you get this almost like uh, Dr. Evil Blofeld-esque lair inside <laughs> this mountain. And these guns are used to blow allied ships out of the water. And so essentially any allied ships that are trying to pass through this area, which is kind of, it's like the only way to get through, are just obliterated and have been throughout the course of the war. That's sort of the setup. And some allied soldiers, I believe, if if memory serves, allied soldiers are trapped on a different island and they're trying to rescue them. Um, somebody can jump in if I'm mistaken on that plot point in a minute, but they're, they're trying to get soldiers out of there and there's like a timeline cut off of in a few days, it's going to happen. So Gregory Peck and crew are to go in there and destroy the guns of Navarone. So they have to do this sort of impossible mission sort of thing. And that's kind of what the plot is. It's, it's them on their mission on all these kind of little like side missions and all the problems that they come across until they get to the mountain with guns. So that is the film that we are watching. 1961's The Guns of Navarone. What do we make of it? As far as, uh, I don't know. It's, it's kind of got like a heisty element. I'm a sucker for, uh, mm-hmm. let's assemble a team type movies. Yep given the time period and i'll probably come back to this a couple of times but given the time period the 60s early 60s uh, it was ahead of its time i think in the sense that that type of movie wasn't quite as excitingly executed (laughs) as it might be now sure Uh, so it it dragged a little at times yeah it's not it's not quite oceans 11 (laughs) right yeah yeah, needs I'll, more Cheadle. <laughs> I'll agree in that, uh, you know, when it was a 1960s war movie um, that I knew we were getting ourselves into, 
Uh, I haven't really gravitated towards many of those like time period war movies. I know there's like Tora, Tora, Tora is one of them. There's like the longest day, and a lot of them are just bridge, very bridge like too far. Yeah, I haven't seen any of those. Uh, I've seen bits and pieces. Um, I, I think your I think your prejudices on it are probably apt. Yeah, I watched a bridge too far in like high school, and I remember you know it's like a five hour movie or something and being kind of like, I mean, not really, I'm exaggerating, but it is very long. And I remember just being kind of like, ah, and like, I think Tora, Tora, Tora and the longest day are similar kind of things. Yeah. From my understanding scope is what they were going for. <laughs> yeah. So then when I saw, uh, you know, to Devin's point, like they're like, Hey, we're assembling a team. And I was, I kind of like grabbed the couch and was like, oh, this is different. <laughs> a man on a mission movie. And they're like, this guy has got a, you know, well, A, Gregory Peck's like the mountain climber, which is, you know, pretty cool reason to come into a, I guess, a war scenario. I don't know where that's coming into play in like previous missions, but, you know, I was in. And then you have. I like, want to put a I want to put a pin on that uh, mountain <laughs> climber element and we'll circle back around to that in a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, but yeah, they, they called one of them was like, I don't know, the butcher of Barcelona. Barcelona, yeah. He's yeah. just a guy who knifed people all the time. Which, <laughs> Great you know, man to have on your team. Any yep, team. Good to have. Better than have him uh, on the team than off the team. And then, uh, this guy's a demolitions expert. Yeah, demolitions this guy's a mountaineer. Yeah. And this guy just slits throats. <laughs> well, I feel like when he was telling about that guy, and Greg, it, it felt like the, he was about to tell Gregory Peck, like, well, Gregory Peck was going to question why Knifey would be on the team. And he kind of like cuts him off, and he's like, what's well, kind of like you'd always want someone like that in a war scenario. He's just ready to kill at any time. So he's not, he was one of two. Also. <laughs> yeah. Don't expect him to do anything else, but if you do need killing to be done with a knife, this is your guy. Here I go killing again. <laughs> I will say, uh, yeah. Then like the, it rounded out with like the young hotshot. And then, uh, the other guy, I think it was, was it Franklin Anthony Quinn, Anthony Quinn. Yeah. Anthony Quayle. Franklin, Major Franklin. He was kind of just the lucky guy. And I, I had a bad feeling about that from the, from the onset. <laughs> but uh, yeah, once they started uh, giving out like the whole like uh, confidential, um, you know, Mission Impossible style. Here's your, here's yeah. your team set up. I was, I was, I was all in. Yeah. Um, yeah, the so Gregory Peck is the mountaineer. David Niven is this sort of like sarcastic, done with the war, explosive, explosive expert. Anthony Quinn, did he have a specialty or was he just like a? Mean I was bastard? trying to peg what he was. I, I put him down as the right hand man. This is yeah. lucky. No, this was no, the guy who An- Anthony Quinn, Colonel. Colonel and uh, oh. Andrea Stavros, you know the thicker set guy. I mean, pretty famous actor Anthony Quinn of his time. Yeah, he was like the second or third biggest lead. I think they started talking about him in regards to the mountain climbing element. Like his first reaction was, "Can I get Stavros?" And he's like, "We already got him." <laughs> okay, all right. Yeah, I wasn't it's totally like Gregory sure. Partner. I mean, he's very uh, he's very capable throughout the whole movie and like everything that he does but yeah i wasn't sure of specialty and then 
Yeah, the, the major's kind of along for the ride, initially, figuratively, then literally, later in the movie. Um, <laughs> and then the other guys, I don't know their names, is Spiros? The, is Spiros yeah, Papademos. Papademos, yeah. Okay, and yeah. then who's Who, the, uh, like... Who's the just he's like a born, little... born killer, they said. <laughs> who's the little guy that like doesn't really do much the whole movie and is just sort of there in the background? I think that's Papademos, right? It must be. Or it was somebody who was so in the background that I didn't oh, even well, write okay. his name. Okay, so Papademos is the little guy. I'm talking about, but the butcher the guy. The butcher, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, he didn't really do it. No, there's two guys, though. There's the, there's the butcher guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then there's yeah. the little guy. That's yeah. Papademos. Okay, I'm saying yeah. so. Who's the butcher guy then? What's his name? Uh, butcher. Is it is it CPO Butcher Brown? Oh, okay. Yeah, so they, Butcher yeah. Brown. Butcher, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I I thought they just gave him that name because he was just a fucking cold blooded murderer. I didn't know he actually had Butcher in his name. Supposedly. Yeah. I First guess it name could Butch. Have. Nickname yeah. Butcher. All right. So anyway, so yeah, like these guys are saying, it's very much in the style of men on a mission movies. I don't. I honestly don't know that genre like how far back it goes because Jimmy you mentioned in the notes like Dirty Dozen being kind of the gold standard of what we think of and there's other ones definitely in the 70s and then the most recent famous one is probably Inglorious Bastards which only sort of does it it does it a bit with the bastards themselves but then it goes into so many other different directions with all the different characters we focus on so it's like only a men on a mission movie for that that grouping of characters um and then i you know mission impossible could be considered in that vein as well but yeah i don't know farther back from the 60s i don't know this could be a very early example of the genre i i don't i mean 61 even because dirty dozen is like 67 or 8 i think um all right before we get too far away from it uh eric where do you fall on it uh yeah i'm kind of like in the same vein i i thought it was pretty good i did think the effects a lot of visuals held up for 1961 i think where um i think this is kind of what devin was kind of pointing to in a way is like a lot of the action in between like the gunfights and stuff isn't that kind of old stilted way where it's like you just cut to one guy spraying gunfire and you cut away and the guys a few guys are falling down and it's like and i don't even mean that it's just like there's no gore it's just like the way that they do action scenes it's not exciting and i think um, apart from like a, a propensity to throw Nazis off of high heights, which was always cool, the action was always kind of the same, and you didn't really like get a lot of big gun battles or anything. Um, so I think like the the action spots in between that are supposed to kind of hold your attention for this movie of this length uh, didn't really work for me. So I kind of like yeah felt like it was slow. They had a couple of really cool set pieces that. Yeah, like those set pieces were cool, but then yeah, all that connective tissue was, I don't know, trudgy. Yeah, and and I compare it to the Dirty Dozen, which is one I've walked watched as a kid. No, as a, uh, I remember watching in high school too. Like that, I feel like flows a lot quicker and is more like holds your attention more, and probably isn't as long. So when you're you're kind of thinking of this style of movie like Men on a Mission that you don't really get bogged down with a lot of the other stuff, especially when it's just a made-up thing that didn't really happen in the war. It feels like you can kind of do whatever you want. Yeah, we've uh, a lot of people here have talked about the length, and so I'll say that. So if you haven't seen this movie and if you're interested in watching it, uh, you know, particularly if you've listened through to the end of the episode here in a bit and you're interested in watching it, 
that is something to be aware of. It's like over two and a half hours. It's like 2.36, I think. Um, and I've seen this. This might be like the third or fourth time. I don't know. I've, I've owned it for a long time, but I have not watched it in years. Kind of like part of the reason I do this podcast. <laughs> um, so I was rewatching it, and like I got to say – the length did bog me down a good bit on this watch. Um, there's a lot of good stuff in it. I like a lot of things in it. I definitely know why I was into it initially. I was a little surprised because it was like, did I have more patience in high school? That seems <laughs> weird because uh, it seems like the inverse would be true. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's just because I'd already seen the movie a couple times. And so I'm not as like, like you guys are saying, you kind of went into it and you're like, Oh, men on a mission, hang on. And so maybe I was just kind of like getting into the kind of almost mission impossibly vibe when I first watched it. And now having watched it later and no, know, knowing where everything kind of goes, um, the weight is just the weight of the length just sort of is, is, is hanging out there. I, I don't think there's just like huge chunks that are just awful or boring or bad. It's just you could easily cut 20 minutes at minimum and the movie would work as well or likely better. I mean, if you could get it down to a lean two hours, that's probably preferable. I don't know exactly what you cut. I don't know. You know, some of it's just like you trim some scenes here or there or maybe there's less Greek singing and dancing. I'm not sure. <laughs> that was sure. the first thing I thought of. <laughs> You know, you give a little bit for local flavor, and then you move on. <laughs> you don't need to reuse so many shots of rock climbing and dancing at weddings. <laughs> yeah, yeah so I think I, uh, I think to your point, like you know, movies at that time didn't have as much of a focus on like, got to make sure the audience is paying attention. It's like, no, 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 we're gonna make our movie. The audience will stay in there, and you know, like they they don't have quite the attention span deficit that I think we get kind of pegged in our generation um, sure we're all... spoiled on uh moving pictures at this point <laughs> yeah right uh but i will say like having watched this the first time i you know you felt the length at points but on a first watch i think it moved pretty well i don't know if Devin, you agree and eric but like uh i i, I didn't find myself like looking at the watch and going like oh my gosh another hour left Except for the fact that it was like, you know, getting into like 1 a.m. territory. Then I started looking at my watch and going, oh my gosh, how much longer is left? Yeah, yeah. I watched this on a day off of work and uh, it chewed up day. a decent <laughs> chunk of that afternoon. But uh, yeah, I don't think that it, it didn't, it didn't drag noticeably where if I was in a theater watching it when it came out, you know, even in my mindset that I have in, in contemporary times, I don't think that I would have been, like, checking my watch or anything. It wasn't quite so bad. Yeah, I think for me, it, yeah, I don't I don't say I felt bored at times. I think what happened with me was, like, you know, they, they established a the plot very quickly in this, like, scene that's the opening. It's like, oh, that's a cool thing. Like, they got to go destroy these giant guns that are... That the, that the Nazis have, and I'm not surprised it was just, like, a made-up thing, because I looked it up later. <laughs> I was like, because that really happened, that's cool. Um, and then, yeah. <laughs> and then you have this kind of style of, of genre that we're used to, where it's, like, men on a mission, so you're just kind of kind of cut to the chase pretty quickly. And then I think, so when there were scenes where they're kind of, like, building character and trying to, like, put more themes into it, I was kind of like, oh, they're doing this too? I thought they were just gonna <laughs> go right in. So... <laughs> 
Um, Building character <laughs> themes. I thought this was just going to be mindless action. Right. And then I was, that was my mistake. Because I remember watching uh, Bridge on the River Kwai in college and not feeling bored. And that's not an action-packed movie necessarily. But I think they are taking their time on purpose and doing different things than just, oh, we got this mission to do. Let's get to it. Um, well, and this is, as I said at the top, this is the same writer as Bridge on the River Kwai. So they brought him in because they liked, I mean, because that movie was very successful. And he was initially hesitant, from what I read, hmm. to work on it because he just felt like it would be kind of retreading some similar ground. And eventually, and he also thought it would be very difficult to film. But they convinced him. And, uh, you know, I think ultimately it was the right decision because I think, as we're saying, for a movie of its time and for like an action adventure kind of picture of its day, I think it holds up pretty well. I, I think we're all in agreement that it could be trimmed, uh, trimmed for the modern audience. But, um, I mean, Jimmy and and I were on Secret of the Incas, which is a Charlton Heston movie that helped inspire Indiana Jones. And boy, oh boy, was that adventure film light on the adventure. Like, that was like 57, Jimmy, something like that. Yeah, and, uh, it definitely wasn't two and a half hours, but it sure felt longer than this movie. Yeah. yeah. And this movie, like, you know, there there's some legit action that works really well. And then when I, I feel like the best parts of the movie are when it's just the guys talking and like sorting shit out and getting pissed at each other and about ready to kill each other. Like, I think some of those character moments work as well as any of the like adventure stuff. Yeah, and I kind of agree with that as well. I think there were some really good moments that I wasn't expecting in a uh, a kind of a Men on the Mission movie that, you know, actually really added some character development uh, to it. But I think that's any time, like, the first time I watched The Great Escape, you know, like, that's a three-hour movie. That's over three hours. And the first time I watched it, I was like, this movie's great. I, you know, I didn't feel that three hours go by, you know, it went by pretty fast. Yeah. And then the second time I watched it, I was like, Oh man, there's still two hours left in this. Because <laughs> you kind of know what's coming, and then and yeah. you kind of know what to expect. I think that's like with any movie of this length. Uh, yeah, let's dig into character here, like uh, who we liked and everything uh, in a moment. But I'm thinking of it because Eric kind of mentioned the idea of like, wouldn't it be cool if this actually happened? Of thinking that this uh, might have been legit, and then Devin, you went into it thinking it was real, kind of as it was unfolding, right? Like you thought it was just legit. Yeah, I remember when uh, the credits were still rolling at the top of the movie, I immediately Googled, is this movie real? <laughs> Without naming the title of the movie, you're just like some stoned guy typing in, is this movie real? Is is this all a movie? No, I just shouted it at my Echo Dot. And, uh... <laughs> Alexa, what am I watching? <laughs> no, I... Uh, I... I saw the military consultants or something like that, and many thanks to the people of Greece and the so-and-sos and the admiralty and stuff, and and my thought was, this is something that happened? Because I had seen a blurb about what was, you know, the plot, as Linton described it, and it seemed really cool. Yeah, I had the same thought that Eric did, that if this was real, then that's pretty sweet. And war so, is fun. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah uh, kind of disappointed that it uh, was all made up. 
Well, that's but the thing, that's though. Okay. I, I always thought it was all made up, but it's not totally. I uh, it, it is mostly, and I'll say that if you haven't seen the movie, one thing I like about it is that it, it has almost, even though it's very low level, and that if it, the movie were to be made today, everything would be very much amped up. Um, but it has this almost like comic book vibe to it with these gigantic guns and a mountain that's shooting at ships. And like I said at the beginning, there's that uh, almost like James Bond villain lair. And when they get to that, I totally forgot, but they get inside the lair and the Nazis in there aren't just dressed like regular Nazis. They have like these like special like protective things they're wearing and it makes them look sort of like space agey. Like they're, you know, I mean, it's, it's all supposed to be protective for where they're at. But it adds this kind of like, you know, stormtrooper s like a little sci-fi vibe almost that they're wearing something that's not just, oh, a Nazi uniform. Um, so it has a, a little James Bond feel to it. The blocking so I, in that uh, in that lair when they were arming those guns and everything was very, yeah, I don't know. I maybe this is hot off the the heels of uh, last Jedi or or <laughs> whatever, but uh, very. Uh, first order kind of sure just like marching around everyone has their 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 spot and they just plant there and it's all very choreographed well is it very first order or is the first order very nazi (laughs) i couldn't even follow that i don't know (laughs) jimmy raises a fine point but it was a confusing point i I, I understand that um but that was a tough one but yeah, so so there's this Moving like right comic, there's this comic book kind of vibe to it, and it's like a like a comic book or pulpy kind of vibe that I like. But here's the thing, it's not totally untrue. It's a made up island, although they based the island like the the map and stuff they used they worked off of like a real Greek island, I guess. Um, but there is a battle in uh, in whatever sea that is for the Greek islands. I don't know if anybody knows, Aegean but. Or Aegean? Okay. So there there were, like, battles in there, and there was uh, a specific island that the Nazis held for the majority of the war that made it very difficult for ships to pass through. And I guess they did have guns mounted on a, uh, like, a, a cliffside or something, although it said that the guns were six inches so, like, I don't know how you, like, mount six-inch guns, or maybe they, like, lay down on the ground and the guns are, like, bolted in. I don't know what it is. But I guess, so in this so, movie, there's, like, two gigantic guns. That six are... inches would be the, uh, the like, the, the bore. Sh- the, the shell size, right? Yeah, shell size. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I assume. That makes more no. sense. I mean, it's still like it's this. still not yeah. close to what the movie was. It's like the noisy like cricket, f- yeah, five feet long. <laughs> well, I was I was picturing, yeah, I was picturing like an actual just like gun barrel, and then that the guns themselves were a bit more powerful. But that makes more that's, sense. Okay, that's why the Nazis so, lost um, because the guns they put on the sill were just like too small, two snipers. So anyway, uh, but yeah, apparently, so they had, but they didn't have two. They had, I think it said like maybe eleven or something, and so it wasn't to this degree. And I don't. Uh, I don't know if they were ever actually, um, you know, destroyed or anything during a course. But, but yeah, there is something called the Battle of Leros that did help inspire the basic idea of this. And then Alistair McLean came in and, you know, just kind of amped it up and made it much more, you know, cinematic. I mean, it was a book, but, you know, 
added a lot of elements to it. So it's it's inspired by history. Yeah, I wondered when I when I heard the, the what the mission was, it, it was like, oh, that sounds like something more of like a sci-fi movie would have. And I was like, maybe this influenced future sci-fi movies or James Bond stuff. And now when you mentioned like how the soldiers were like lined up trying to like burn that door open at the end, like yeah, that does feel like more not like war movies I usually see. Like that's like not something you think would happen in a war. All right, so let's uh, let's dig into character. What do we make of some of these folks? I don't, maybe character. For me, it's it's more about the actors. Like, did I like the character? It comes down to more of a question of did I think the actor was good? Sure. And for me, I like Stavros. He was enjoyable. Uh, Niven was great. I very much enjoyed it pretty much Stop, everything Stavros he did being anthony quinn's character so you say uh, <laughs> i'm just trying to make it clear for anyone listening yes yeah thank you uh yeah those two i think are, are top two for me everyone else was a distant second at best i don't know i would say uh i enjoyed uh, maybe the top four that would include Gregory Peck and uh, Anthony Quayle, who played Major Franklin. This may be controversial. Not <laughs> a big Peck guy. So, I would say, uh, this is only the second movie I've seen of Gregory Peck's. The first one being To Kill a Mockingbird. And I enjoyed both of them. And I understand, like, alright, I guess he was supposed to be playing a Brit. And yeah. he just used his American Peck accent the whole time. But, uh... It's- it sounds like Jimmy's a huge peckerhead. At this point, having watched two movies... Don't, don't worry, Devin. Yeah. I'll, I'll edit in a laugh track for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sign me up for more peck at this point. And his eyebrows the entire time, just <laughs> constantly giving like, the, the, the what's up to every single character. I oh, oh, he, oh, he had some mad eyebrow game throughout his entire yeah. career. Um, <laughs> yeah, with, uh, with Peck, I've seen, a, I've seen a decent amount of his stuff uh to kill a mockingbird of course is fantastic and he was in the boys from brazil which is one of the only movies he played a villain it's been years since i watched it but i remember him being good in it um because that's where it's like nazi scientists are creating hitler clones and he was probably his other really major role in pop culture is he's the father in the omen and his eyebrows are insane in that movie they're just like (laughs) huge bushy things uh that i can never get out of my brain anytime i watch the omen and then yeah he had like tons of movies in his uh early career that he was in some hitchcock stuff and things uh cape fear is great and so jimmy if you if you are a peckerhead as uh as Devin <laughs> has so so adequately put it i guess uh, to put a fine point on it um or if you are enjoying his stuff yeah i would i would highly recommend cape fear because both he and uh, Robert Mitchum are fantastic in that, and that's a really good early thriller. But yeah, I I like Gregory Peck in general, but he's definitely I understand where you're coming from, Devin, in that he's definitely an old school Hollywood kind of actor, where it's like, this is me, this is my presentation, <laughs> you know, like what's that? I am the leading man. <laughs> yeah, like I mean, it's yeah. it's the. I mean, it's kind of like what Sean Connery and some older stars were. And I think Sean Connery is like 
better and and more probably more charismatic but it's sort of like i'm always going to be myself you put me in whatever the role is and i am always going to play sean connery and that's kind of i think what gregory peck usually is it's like he's just always going to be gregory peck front and center here's here's the thing about gregory peck put him in a courtroom and to kill a mockingbird but don't make him a charismatic mountain climber who's leading this band of misfits to destroy the giant Nazi guns. <laughs> Was he supposed, I don't know to, be he's supposed to be charismatic? Just... <laughs> I think he's just like a team leader. Yeah. yeah, I guess. I mean, he didn't seem like anybody's favorite guy in the world, I guess, at <laughs> right. that point. I don't know how the many character. of the characters by the end of it, yeah, like wanted to kill him. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> you also said, uh, you wanted to revisit the mountain climber aspect of it? Oh, Is yeah. That... They really sold that as, like, the main component of why they needed him. And then it's, like, the first story beat. And it just, like, shipwreck, smash cut to, he's on the rocks. Like, there's no build up to it. And I think that that should have been my first clue as to the running time of this movie. Because <laughs> I did not look that up beforehand. <laughs> But uh, I was like, wow, they're really hitting this mountain climbing thing early. <laughs> and then they, they spend a lot of time on the rock, but then they're up, and that's it. Like, it seemed like a, like a Michael Bay Armageddon situation where, like, you could have opened up the scope of your search for the right people and uh, just showed some of them how to put on some crampons and <laughs> drive a stake into a rock. Yeah, I will. I, I thought about the same thing when they got to that rock. Was like, they made the big deal of, we need this team, we need this guy. He's the best rockman in the business, right? And uh, you know, he even was like, I do, "You want me to do this at night? I couldn't do this during the day." And then not only does he do it at night, but in like a torrential downpour. And I'm like, "All right, I guess we're doing this." Why he's <laughs> very <the> modest. <laughs> He's like, I haven't, I haven't climbed in five years, and I guess I'll just do it. In- yeah, I mean, it is interesting that you bring that, like, he he did he did the mountain climbing thing early on and then never really had to do it again yeah. Yeah. in the rest of the movie. I guess he kind of climbed down the rope at the end, but it wasn't, like, a in a crazy way that where he needed to summon his mountain climbing skills to save the day at the end. It was just kind of like... Yeah, I'd already yeah, forgotten about He did his thing, and now, that. yeah... <laughs> Well, when no he gets, he gets up the mountain and Anthony Quinn gets up and Anthony Quinn has this kind of vendetta against Gregory Peck because he blames Gregory Peck for the death of his wife and children because like Gregory Peck didn't do anything directly, but just kind of like through inaction, it happened. And so there's sort of this like thread that's like playing throughout the movie of uh, Anthony Quinn put, is presumably going to try to kill Gregory Peck after the war is over. He's directly told him that. And so he has a couple opportunities to do something, and one of them is when Gregory Peck is on this cliffside, and Anthony Quinn could just like, oops, I couldn't help him, and just like let him fall to his death. But so they both get up, and then there's this major character who I mentioned was uh, kind of along for the ride. He's a major, right? Or Yeah, Major Franklin. Yeah, he's a major. Okay. Um, and they're, they clearly created some sort of like, I don't know, gigantic hollywood rock slide like it's supposed to be the side of a mountain but it's like clearly been carved out so that an actor could gently slide down it like a children's slide and you can tell but so the guy's like 
climbing up through part of it and he's supposed to get to the top like all of them and and then he ends up falling and breaking his leg and that ends up becoming a major component of the plot throughout the rest because now they're stuck with this guy who has an injured leg and i did not understand i was sitting there like why didn't that guy get a rope like why were they not throwing a rope down to him he was literally just like he was sticking his leg against a rock and trying yeah. to shimmy his body up and everybody else got ropes and things to shove into the rocks and climb up i know he's yeah. not a mountain climber but why aren't they at least giving him a rope to like grab onto while he does it i didn't get what yeah. did i miss a thing and it seemed like the the a couple of characters at the top like watching him struggle and just kind of like like rooting for him but then even like shout encouragement it was just kind of like yeah, he might make it i don't know and then he just slides down and breaks his legs oh, i guess we should go get him but you're right yeah they could have they could have tossed a rope down to help him out I, I, don't, I don't understand why he didn't have a rope anyway. Like, why wouldn't that just be a yeah. part of the climbing for all of them? He was the last it's one. It's like I Gregor, guess, Gregory uh... Peck and Anthony Quinn get the ropes, and they're like, well, you guys are on your own. We're the mountain climbers, and you guys we just figure ropes. it out. We were responsible. <laughs> you don't have your own rope? I, I, don't, I don't loan mine out. Yeah, it's kind, of a, it's kind of a mountain climber thing. We don't really like to lend out our equipment. You know, it's weird when someone else is using it, so... I don't know about you guys, but I would have needed a little bit more than just a rope to climb that. <laughs> a helicopter for me. That's the only yeah. way I'm going. <laughs> Maybe two ropes would have been where I needed to be. <laughs> there was uh, this one part of the climb that was this domed piece of rock, and they used the shot like twice, and then everyone climbed over it at least one time. Like they had the, the crack that the guy fell down in, and then this other portion of the rock, and those were the only two pieces of rock that they had to work with for the set. And then they just kept climbing over this one portion of rock. <laughs> I did read that the the mountain climbing, actually, they were not climbing upwards. They had a fake mountainside, essentially, for all the actors, and it was laying on the ground. And then the camera was tilted to its side, so they were crawling, you know, across the ground but to make it look like basically like batman style. batman and robin style. old yeah <laughs> old batman tv style um one other thing that kind of got thrown out there was with gregory peck yeah we were, we were addressing him just sort of always being gregory peck so someone mentioned he's supposed to be british in this he plays essentially as an american like if you didn't know he was supposed to be british your assumption i think would just be oh he's like in europe and he's working with the english and that would make more sense if it's just they need him or they go through oss or something but yeah the character i guess in the book is new zealander but then in the movie that's never said so you would assume he's presumably then just like british he could be new zealander or whatever but either way gregory peck did not he like essentially just chose not to slash refuse to attempt a british accent but he also, the character is supposed to be fluent in Greek and German. Yeah. And Gregory Peck was unable to do either convincingly. So they had somebody dub him for both. So Gregory Peck's abilities were fairly limited in this film. Well, I don't want I to also... slight the guy, but I feel like there were a lot of better actors in that movie. And it's just like the guy got lucky. I feel like 
Well, I read that uh, Gregory Peck and David Niven bonded tremendously while shooting it because David Niven was so thoroughly impressed that Gregory Peck was drinking bourbon throughout most of the shoot and didn't flub a line. (laughs) So I guess it's like, listen, I do my thing. I drink my bourbon. I'm not going to do an accent. I'm not going to pretend to do German. I'm just going to go out there and do what I do. And then David Niven's like, God, this guy's up. This is the consummate professional. Yeah. I'm gonna go and I'm gonna say the words that are on the page and I'm gonna nail it every time. I guarantee I won't slur it once. <laughs> That's why I get paid the big bucks. Yeah, for uh, when it comes to him and Niven, I that was like one of the better scenes of the movie for me near the end when he and Niven, uh, Gregory Peck and Niven, kind of go at each other. They're in this like kind of bunker area. And uh, David Niven, they they uncover a um, a traitor, and David Niven is trying to figure out or, or urge them of what should be done about the traitor because they had dynamite and other explosives, and now they're suddenly they've been sabotaged. So yeah, I, I thought the acting of that scene uh, was particularly strong, and I know Devin, you were saying like Gregory Peck wasn't big on your list but you said you did like both Niven and Quinn right oh yeah yeah I thought they were both great uh in terms of the I don't know believability and genuine kind of emotion that they brought to the roles and maybe there was more that could have been done with some of the other characters Papa Demos and the Butcher of Barcelona but uh I and maybe yeah they could have done more but for whatever reason, these top build three were just kind of given the meat. Yeah, I mean, I'll say so. Like, obviously, this is a men on a mission movie. They, the plot itself is pretty straightforward. I think sometimes these men on a mission movies try and get you to the end point, and by the time you're there, you're like, "Wait, why are they doing this? Like, what? What's the whole point of this?" All right, we're we're blowing something up. Who cares? Like, this one's like. You got some guns, got to go save some people, blow up the guns. Like, very straightforward. But I think one of the more interesting things, and like what you mentioned, Linton, was some of these character aspects, was it was like Peck and Quinn had a very strong relationship and had been you know with each other throughout the war. And yeah, that relationship eroded, but then Niven and Quail also had a similar relationship where they were mm-hmm. in the war for a long time. And so once uh, Anthony Quell's character, Major Franklin... Uh, breaks his leg like there's that that butting of heads between what gregory peck is like kind of choosing to do as the next in line and as a leader and what david niven thinks should be done because anthony quails his friend and it all kind of comes to a head in that scene that you're speaking of in the uh in the bunker yeah and the bit of character development will say that the butcher of barcelona gets i don't remember the guy's name uh butcher brown or something like that yeah uh his one thing is you know at one point he's suspect early on like is is he tipping the nazis off is he working for the enemy and it turns out that it's just that he doesn't want to kill people anymore and i read uh just before we started this recording that um someone it might have been i don't want to misspeak one of the actors or the writers were uh, taken with the uh, very anti-war element of 
the screenplay it, and that's it was kind that, of why they were that actor they was oh well yeah he, uh, from what i read i i'm not familiar with that actor his name is uh stanley, stanley baker, baker. Yeah. And I think he was in a good amount of like British productions. I'm sure he was mm. in some American stuff over the years, but I guess he was like a pretty big actor in England. And he, so he was like, it was a small part from what I read for his stature at the time. But yeah, the reason that he accepted it was because of like the anti-war vibe, which I think the movie's anti-war to a point. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I didn't it, really get the sense that it was heavily. Yeah, it's it's like. I think I mean, it's, it's tough not, to put it's it in not perspective full from our... Yeah, well, it's not Full Metal Jacket. Yeah, I was, was going to say, like, it's... 61. It's not a condemnation it on... The... Yeah, it's yeah. not a condemnation on war, like, some stuff. Uh, but I, it, it definitely has characters who are critical of stuff. It's not all like, rah, rah, beat the Nazis. It's not a John Every, Wayne we... war movie. Right, right? so there's, there's some Which more... There's, there's heaviness to it, and there's some more criticism. And I guess that made it very anti-war at the time. <laughs> Because like yes. now it's like it'd be very light. Like very pro-war movies would have characters like I don't know, guys, should we be doing this? And then somebody else like yes, and picks up a gun. Yeah. I know a studio would be very hesitant to even twenty or less years after World War Two or any major conflict make something that was too critical of the conflict because so many people are still living with the effects of it uh yeah. personally that they wouldn't pay money let alone you know stand it to exist without lambasting it with uh criticisms the hurt locker though that one came out during the war um yeah. and there's a few other modern ones but yeah you're right in most cases they probably don't Somebody, I don't know if it was Devin or Jimmy, somebody had something on the uh, kind of reveal, We're, we will be in spoilery territory here, about the, the like, uh, the mole in their midst. Oh, yeah, I think Jimmy made a point about that. Yeah, I wanted to ask you guys if you thought that was effective. I think that was where the movie came to a screeching halt for me. Because I never picked up on any, like, spy pieces of it. I was, I mean, I, at one point I, I made a note of, like, man, there's not many, like, Man on a Mission movies that you see where the men on the mission are immediately found out. And then they have to still try and accomplish the mission while everyone is after them. Which I guess that could maybe hint towards the spy. Um, but once they started down the whole spy, you know, plot point in the bunker, it was probably... 15 minute scene 20 minute scene focus solely on that at a point where we're like we're ramping up to finish the final piece of the mission and then spy for 20 minutes and then all right let's keep going yeah i think it it felt to me like a way to i don't want to say shoehorn but shoehorn in uh <laughs> yeah i'm gonna say it anyway uh to fit in this this other element of war is not so black and white or something and this person didn't feel like they had i can say the name right like we already said there were spoilers anna yeah. name's anna uh this woman who's with papa demos's sister <laughs> everyone listening is like anna my god oh my god <laughs> not anna. 
the one that didn't have any lines up until this scene yeah it felt like uh just another way to and at a very maybe inopportune time in the movie add in more of this gray area around the conflict and and how it impacts people's lives and it did i think uh add something that wasn't really necessary in that moment had they been earlier in the movie to that point hinting towards there might be a mole like any of the characters were like on anything or was it just in that moment where the guy was like someone sabotaged my explosives um there's some um i mean some of the stuff david niven starts rattling off you're like wait what the fuck that wasn't we didn't see that like where he starts like only this person was in the truck and it's like (laughs) did did we know that are we in a murder mystery right now (laughs) um but no that he at one point he mentions so yeah there's two women that join them and uh and they're helping they are greek right they're just like local people that are working with the allies and i think one of them is is related to the other guy yeah yeah papademos yeah it's like a sister or a cousin or something because they have the same name Um, unless it's like smith over there or something but um (laughs) but uh so they're working with them in kind of the back half of the movie these two women as uh, you know and they're like battling and stuff and uh, but yeah, there's one part where she, one of the women appears to be injured and she's kind of like limping in this cave and then Gregory mm-hmm. Peck comes over and it's like, oh, I can help you. And I'm um, trying to like guide her away. There is like the camera does linger on her for a while in this kind of like, what's up with this? And that's yeah. well before David Niven brings it up. So that one does kind of lay out there. The other bit is... Um, Eric, they, they do they do build it early on because they they're suspicious of the butcher because not being when able they, to butcher when they yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah when, they, when they, yeah. they kill they kill some Nazis early on because Nazis like come to their boat and they wipe them out and that was one of the better like action set pieces I thought mm-hmm. um, but they wipe out these Nazis and one of them I guess was only injured and he pops back up and he's like about ready to get the butcher. And the butcher, I think, doesn't have his gun with him or just has a knife on. I don't know what the exact deal is. But basically, it's like, oh, he's fucked. And then the little guy who says, like, no dialogue through the whole movie or something, he ends up kind of saving the day and killing the guy. But um, uh, Gregory Peck and someone, I don't know if it's Quinn or Niven. I don't know. Gregory Peck and someone question, like, hey, why why'd that happen? Like, they just kind of mm-hmm. question why this guy who's supposed to be, you know, super murder man, uh, why he was, like, somebody got away from him. And mm-hmm. then then there's other points where Peck is kind of, question, like, directly questioning the guy. You know, he's like, oh, what that that's when the guy says, like, that he's, he's fed up with war. So there's definitely this thread of making it seem like that guy could be a Nazi operative or something. So it, it's been built into the plot. Yeah, that there is somebody. And I did have the same thought, like, that early on after they introduced the two female characters, uh, when they linger on the one who limped through the cave, I'd long forgotten it in the two-and-a-half-hour runtime, but uh, it did occur to me as maybe just in the moment, like a red herring or something like that because they'd already set up butcher but turns out there was something to it all along yeah i hate to be the uh the guy who is like 
we could probably cut out one of the two entire female characters in a mostly yeah. all-male cast. Yeah. yeah. But I don't know if we need it, Anna. <laughs> well, Jimmy, yeah. you can be that person. I certainly will not be that person. Especially uh, the let female the record show. has, like, two lines. <laughs> I, I, I had the same I, I, thought, I'll, Jimmy. I was going to say the same thing. So I, I think there's there's arguably a reason for there being two. It's maybe not might not be might be more of a something of convenience in the writing because once the one woman gets revealed she has been um selling them out to the nazis but she did it because essentially they well gregory peck says you could have she she's been essentially forced into working with them because she's afraid of being like sold into prostitution or killed or beaten and so she presents very a very understandable position of like hey what are you gonna do and she's like terrified and he says well you could have just come with us and we could have protected you and she has probably one of the more cutting lines of the movie of like yeah this whole thing's doomed i don't remember exactly how she put it but just like you're not gonna win you're not gonna succeed um, yeah, you were doomed from the start kind of which thing. would make this a much more anti-war film if that actually did happen <laughs> if that's where the movie went um but anyway, so that's that's her argument is like, I can't go in with you because you're not going to succeed. And so I can't you're not going to help me. But once her betrayal is found out, there's a debate over killing her. So you not only have like that, they would be like killing someone in cold blood, essentially, who's not a direct you know, Nazi official and who doesn't have a gun on them. But then you also have, especially for a 1960s movie about World War II, you have men killing a woman, which you would have this kind of like, well, we can't do that. Um, and so I, I think there's that element of the 60s. At, I mean, I'm not saying it's right now, but like I, I think there's this sort of like machio, uh, machismo happening of that they're hesitant, whereas if it were a male spy, they would have just probably shot him immediately. So I think the... Um, I think the other the reason the other female Greek uh, like soldier is there is that removes that as a problem for the screenwriter. So she ends up killing the woman basically because the woman betrayed her as well. And so she is the one who commits it. And so then there's no like our heroes just killed a woman thing. I think that's why they have two. <laughs> I think that's why they're there to kill each other <laughs> which I she lives she lives through it <laughs> that passes the Bechdel test right <laughs> two women talking to well, each they other talk about to killing each other they kill each other but it's not about a guy <laughs> it's about society um, all right. So, what are some of our favorite parts? Whether they're like uh, we've talked about some of them, but like character stuff or uh, any of the set pieces or whatever. I like uh, the scene where they uh, they get caught and they're being interrogated. Um, so the Nazis have caught them. They know something is afoot, and they're trying to get more information. And uh, Anthony Quinn's character decides to. Uh, play the wild card and he starts pretending that he's not really with them he's like oh i'm just a greek fisherman they kidnapped me i'm not part of this and like nazis don't really believe him at all when he does that and i think i'm pretty sure the characters don't believe him like knowing that oh this is not a way out he's just trying to like create a diversion and then and basically initially initially they think 
initially they think he's betraying them, or at least David Niven does. Oh, they do? Okay. Um, yeah, there's a reaction of, like, like you dirty bastard kind of look on oh, okay. at least one of his one of the faces. Yeah, and then eventually he keeps doing it until, uh, you know, the, the Nazi gets close enough where he can punch him, and then, like, the whole room turns and they, they turn the tide. And it, it's funny because I know it's, like, a lot of the characters, like, halfway to the performance are like, you got to ham it up more, they're not biting, and then just... <laughs> He keeps like rolling on the floor and like oh yeah, then the guy's like finally like oh just shut up and they just like yeah I thought that was pretty uh, fun seeing the way it played out. Yeah, for me my favorite scenes were more related to the execution of some of the effects. The ship scene, most of what happens on the ship I thought was pretty good. Uh, down to the shipwreck scene was pretty mm-hmm. compelling. And uh, Linton, you'd mentioned one of the best action set pieces you thought was that uh, boat pullover when the Nazis stopped the ship. Yeah, just I the, the action that was very and the, good. the tenseness leading up to yeah. it. Yeah, I could have used more of that, I guess, throughout. And then beside those two set pieces and uh, some of the atmosphere surrounding even like the rock climb, uh, everything that Niven did in the movie... Uh, miller's character was uh enjoyable yeah niven had some really great comic moments throughout the movie and even on the boat like early on during the downpour he's like bringing coffee into the uh <laughs> the cabin's quarters and like a giant wave will come about and he's got his coffee cup and he just kind of like that's to like splash it out or whatever you know it's just, yeah. some very like subtle ways that he was doing these things that just worked really and then they perspective. uh there's like a cutaway where he goes back out with his cup of coffee and he's offering it to Quinn, I believe it is. He's like working in this torrential downpour. He's like offering him a cup and he's like, he's like no. <laughs> gesturing to the sky as if to say, what? Why? Yeah. There's another good bit where they're preparing to go in uh, dressed as Nazi soldiers to get into the base and like pretty much the whole crew or, or most of the crew has to shave Gregory Peck has been clean shaven the whole time, but Anthony Quinn and the butcher have beards or Anthony Quinn has a mustache and then the butcher yeah. has a beard. Yeah. So they have to shave and the butcher like indicates like David Niven to shave his little trademark pencil thin mustache. Like, Oh, not me old boy. I, I got an officer uniform. You, you've got uh, bad luck that, or it's something, you know, like little very 1960s British line, but uh, it worked. And he had, yeah, he had a good number of them that, uh, sold that character really well speaking of the uh the ship with the nazis that are coming aboard to like investigate did any of you guys pick up on any where that was referenced at in any other movies which part the part where the nazi ship boards the fishing vessel reference like the, the style the style of it or no there is a very distinct spoof of that scene from another movie can anyone call it out i knew it as soon as it pulled up i was like (gasps) because i'd seen this movie so many times and i never knew that that was from anything i assumed it was but i'm gonna throw out i'm gonna throw out a guess i don't i don't have one in mind of like oh i know what you're talking about my guess just based you said spoof and i've seen these but i was never like a big fan it would make sense is it from a hot shots movie Hot Shots Part Deuce. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I've seen that movie many times, but I, I don't but remember this. There's a whole scene where the, uh, I think it's an Iraqi uh, boat 
comes aboard the vessel and then they have to pretend to be fishermen and one guy like licks a worm to try and get it on the uh, the fish hook and then it like flops out and then the female okay. on the boat like tries to fish and the fishing pole goes away and then they find him out because she goes in the uh the identified woman's bathroom and so then they have yeah, to go okay. and i saw that and i was like wait i was connecting all the dots and i, I, I had to stop the movie jimmy is the end of usual scene. suspects and dropping his copy <laughs> it, it was amazing <laughs> That was no, in a barbershop quartet in Skokie, <laughs> Illinois. No, that's cool. Uh, yeah, because I know uh, the, like, Abrams, uh, Zuckers, I think Zuckers and Abrams um, were the airplane and Naked Gun. I know at some point one of them left, um, so they weren't always a, a, together. So I don't know if they were doing hot shots together, but all those guys I know very much would pull from all the movies of the genre they were working with. So it does not surprise me that they would have pulled, they would have been watching all kinds of old war movies and pulled into that for hot shots. Which is funny because the main character of hot shots is Charlie Sheen. And you said that, uh, I think Devin, you said that there was a lot of Charlie Sheen coming out of, it must be the eyebrows or something like squinting in the rain nothing but nothing but charlie sheen for me um now this is not i don't think a direct reference um although i guess i guess now that you've mentioned the hot shots thing it makes me wonder especially knowing the filmmaker i'm about to bring up and knowing that that filmmaker is a fan of tons and tons of old movies it's entirely possible it was intended as a reference but there's a part when the butcher is attacking a dude in like a little shed and the dude ends up like able to kill the butcher which i found to be a little hard to believe based on like the butcher already stabbed the guy and then the guy like got the knife back and it and he wasn't even like a tough looking dude but anyway the butcher kills this guy and the uh, the guy kills the butcher back with a knife but the guy, when he does it, he's stabbing him in the chest and he's covering his mouth. And it reminded me so much of the moment in Saving Private Ryan with the knife going in and the shh. And uh, I know that's a big favorite of yours, Eric. So I don't know if uh, if you made that connection. But yeah, it makes me wonder, though, if like Spielberg possibly took that moment and uh, used that for Saving Private Ryan. Send him a tweet. Ask him. <laughs> I don't think he's on Twitter. Hey, Steve, it's me, Linton. <laughs> he won't take my calls following the incident. Yeah. Well. All right, what else? Uh, what other strong parts we like? Since you mentioned the deaths, should we... I don't know, like, with, with the Men on the Mission movies, there's usually, like, that they start kind of falling off. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's worth going through and kind of piecing and talking about each character's death and, like, because there were some that I'm like, I don't know about that. Yeah. And there's others I was like, oh, okay, that was effective. Some of and... them were very forgettable. I would dare say most of them. Well, only <laughs> only a couple died, right? Yeah. Well, kind like, of. Like, Demos a- and... Anthony Quinn lives. Gregory Peck lives. The woman gets killed by the other woman. We already said that. David Niven lives. Mm-hmm. Um, Papa Demos gets stabbed in the dumbest way possible. Or, or the butcher gets stabbed in the dumbest way possible. The other woman survives, right? She's on the boat. Yeah, She's she the boat. leaves with uh, yeah. Stavros. So, and then the the Broken major, 
he's he he gets left with the nazis and he hears the guns exploding so he's fine he's just in the nazi hospital so the only people that die i wouldn't say that's fine but okay (laughs) he's in nazis hospitals have had some bad (laughs) bad connections um is it safe uh, um, but yeah, the uh, the butcher dies in the dumbest way possible. I honestly didn't even catch how Papa Demos died. He was such a non character. I don't know. Yeah. He got shot. I think. I thought yeah, that was even. And I think Anthony was Quinn was down. trying to go out and help him or something, and then he's just like, "Yeah, never mind," because they're shooting at him too. But yeah, he, he's kind of standing out in the open. He was a born killer, you guys. Back that and was forth. established from the get go. And then they hit each other, and they both fall down. And it's, it was yeah. a weird scene. Like, did it, he have yeah, any they were lines? doing the whole guerrilla warfare. But he wasn't he hiding behind sure stuff. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. he just walks out in the open, just like he runs out. He starts shooting at a bunch of Nazis. They all fall down except for one. Oh, oh! <laughs> and then they stare at each other. I they both, they both start firing. Yeah, and then all the Nazis because... get back up. <laughs> I remember this because the thought I had in my head was machine guns at 20 paces. Because they, they square they off like it's a apart. duel with machine yeah. guns. And it took a while for them to hit. It was yeah, like a back and forth like spray of fire. It's like, oh, finally you landed one of those. Yeah, but I, it's, I know you said he's like the hotshot, Devin. But I never got a point where it was like he's thirsty to kill or something that would cause him to run out in the middle of a square and just start there firing. There was... I don't know if this was in the very same scene that we're talking about, so there might not have been enough build-up for it, but there was one part, at least, where somebody had to, like, pull him away from, like, shooting people. Like, he was just getting too into it. But that was the only indication that he was, checks notes, a born killer. (laughs) Um, Besides that one part with the Nazi standoff and the machine guns at the end. Yeah. So if we're into some like tricky areas, we've talked, you know, at different times of stuff that we think is holding it back or that doesn't work super well. For me, like I said, it, it's it's largely the length, but there's a couple parts that I thought definitely could be stronger. One is I really think the ending needed a firefight. Like they they the stuff you with had the a lot guns, of bodies. They, they, <laughs> They, yeah, they, they get into the mountain complex and they, like, block off the Nazis and they've, like, barricaded the door and stuff. And David Niven and Gregory Peck are setting up bombs. And all that stuff's, like, really cool and very, like, James Bondy, like I said. And then uh, David Niven has, like, a second set of bombs that he thinks they're not going to discover. And that's how the guns end up getting destroyed. But then he and uh, Gregory Peck go down the cliff face and they get to a boat. And then they're, like, in a boat for, like, ten minutes waiting for the guns to blow up while the guns are shooting on these ships that are essentially defenseless. So we as an audience are just sort of like, I sure hope those guns get destroyed. (laughs) And so, like, there's no one on screen is doing anything. They're just watching, which is not. Yeah. um, But and that I can kind of deal with. But I really think. I think there should have been some kind of firefight. Like, and maybe that's my modern sensibility thinking of how it should go. But, like. Because there's this timing aspect of the Nazis are trying to cut through the door while Gregory Peck and David Niven are just planting the bombs and then leave. And I feel like a modern movie would have had them get through that door. (laughs) And it would have had Gregory Peck and David Niven or whoever, you know, like having to kill some dudes and then like climb through some tunnels and shit. Like you would have had like an action piece there. Whereas here it's like, and they got away just in time. And so we don't get any action. Isn't that what we all want? So it it, it seemed kind of anticlimactic in that regard. Because even though you get the guns exploding, our main characters don't 
get to do much in the actual climax. Um, so that was one thing. And then the other, uh, I, I based my name around this um, for this episode. So they're like, they're in this Greek village and the Nazis have followed them there and they've like split up and they're hiding and there's a group of them and they end up going to this sort of like little Greek courtyard where all these people are sitting around having lunch and they're like singing folk songs. And so it's like, okay, they can kind of mix in with the locals and not be totally, and they're dressed like fishermen and stuff. So they're not like totally obvious. Eventually the Nazis end up like finding them. But before that, one of like, uh, what's his name? Uh, Papadimos. So he's actually Greek. So he starts singing like a solo for one of these Greek folk songs. And so like all the focus in the village is on him. And I'm like, dude, dude, the Nazis are like two streets away. Why are you drawing? And like David Niven and Gregory Peck are sitting there like, oh, he's got a quite, quite a lovely singing voice. Yes. It's like, no, you guys should not be saying anything. So I didn't really get that part. So I thought they were going to lead it up to, because initially like everyone's singing along to that song. Right. And unsurprisingly, Gregory Peck and David Niven don't know the words of the Greek song, so they can't sing along. And I thought that was going to be the giveaway. Sure. And that the solo was going to be glorious bastards kind of thing. Yeah. It takes it away because, Oh, like, yeah. He's Greek. He knows the solo part. Yeah. Let's move on. And then it was like, no, no, no. We, we still know it's you because you're Gregory Peck and uh, (laughs) you're obviously not Greek. So come with us. Because David Niven looks like the most British man who's (laughs) ever existed. But it turns out that none of that mattered because they beelined right for him as soon as they showed up because they were tipped off anyway. Yeah, so that was weird because, like, I I agree with you, Jimmy. It would work so much better if it was they were trying to Mission Impossible their way around something and it, like, they were uncovered. But, yeah, the Nazis just, like, show up at their table. (laughs) Like, that's you. We know it's you. It's a bit of a wasted scene. I guess that's what uh, you get when you're kind of early to the men on a mission game like this movie sure. was. You don't quite yeah. figure out the intricacies. Uh, all right. So the only other like bit um, that I saw that was interesting was that guns, the guns of Navarone helped to inspire the original Castle Wolfenstein game of 1981. Um, <laughs> the creator of that game was playing a different arcade game that had... I, I've never played any of that, but I guess Castle Wolfenstein being the first of all of it was like a, a very, very, very early stealth game. Um, so you were trying to avoid getting like captured and killed in a sort of, uh, you know, with Pac-Man-esque graphics, I think. But he was playing some game that I think had maybe some similar structure, and then he watched Guns of Navarone a couple days later and thought, hey, that could be cool. And so the Guns of Navarone helped to inspire that, which then went on to make the Wolfenstein franchise, which is about 10, 15 games deep at this point. So uh, that was kind of neat. It's a lasting impact. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, what else we have before we wrap up? Anything? I just wanted to mention the, I guess, sequel, uh, Force yes. 10 from Navarone, starring... Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I, uh, Harrison Ford. Young Harrison Ford, yeah. yeah. 
So I actually own that movie. Harrison, yeah, but I've never seen it. <laughs> Harrison Ford. Uh, it has uh, Edward Fox. Harrison Ford. I'm not sure if he plays anyone from this, but Edward Fox plays the David Niven character, and then uh, Gregory Peck role is Robert Shaw, right? I think. Yeah. Uh, I own that as well. And then there's Harrison Ford, Barbara Bach, Carl Weathers, Richard Keel, aka Jaws. Ah, talk about a stacked cast. Well, how have you not watched this, Jimmy? Well, I bought this box set of war movies, and uh, I don't know. You just how often do you go to your box set of war movies and say, "Let's watch a war movie"? But it has Harrison Ford in it. I know. I was all excited when you said, "Let's watch the Guns of Navarone." I'm like, "I own that," and they're like, "Oh no, I own." That's a funny thing that you say that. <laughs> and when Linton gets to the eventual question about would we recommend this, uh, if you're the right audience for it, uh, short answer, but uh, not to get ahead of myself, my dad actually had this on DVD, but it was like that DVD that's in the back of the cabinet, like somebody had given it to him, <laughs> thinking that it would be up his alley, but he kind of never got around to watching it, or maybe he had mentioned it to somebody in passing. I don't think that I ever saw it on the screen, but I recognized the name Navarone from that case for that movie, thinking that that was this. And then uh, here I find out that it's the sequel that the author of the book wrote movie characters into to focus on the stuff that the audience was already familiar with and kind of left to the side some of the elements from the book. Yeah, uh, I've never, I own the original book guns and ever own so it's something i want to read eventually i've never read any um mclean but uh but that one i think is probably his most famous and i enjoy the movie so i wanted to give it a go some point but yeah i also own force 10 from never it's fun it's not amazing i think it's from what memory serves it's probably a bit more action-packed and more in the style of what we think of a men on a mission movie being but it probably isn't quite as well done maybe in some of the character moments and stuff. I mean, the actors are good, obviously, because you have Robert Shaw and Edward Fox is good. And then Harrison Ford, I think, has like, I think he's kind of like a, he's like a Papa Demos level guy in it. I, I don't think he has a huge role from yeah. whatever. It's been years. But I was thinking that at some point we would probably do Force 10 from Navarone as well uh, in the future. So I could bring the crew back. Uh, if you guys want in on that one, um, you know, I don't know, months down the road, won't do it anytime soon. But yes, there yeah, is just a so you know, I bought this box set and not knowing, I, I was like, ooh, these movies look interesting. I guess they're all Men on a Mission movies. And it included um, Where Eagles Dare. Uh -huh. And it included Kelly's Heroes. Those it included Force Eastwoods. 10 from Navarone. Yeah. And it included uh, The Big Red One, all of which I think are all Men on a Mission movies. All of which I haven't watched yet. I've owned this box set for like eight years. The, the, time to put some work in. The Big Red One I watched for the first time a couple years ago. I can't remember if it's exactly a Men on a Mission movie, but it. It's I don't. A, I it's think a it's good, a more straightforward war movie. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's good. It I liked yeah, it. I do remember um, liking it. I mean, all the ones you just mentioned, Jimmy, are like they're all worth watching. Uh, I think I wasn't a big fan of. You said Kelly's Heroes. Yeah. I don't think I love that, and I, I don't own, like, Where Eagles Dare or anything, but it also has, like, a pretty crazy comic booky thing because I think it's, like, Clint Eastwood leading a team to break into a Nazi castle in the Alps or something. They have to, like, 
get in through a ski lift or some shit. I don't know. There's some like crazy stuff that uh, is part of that in a very like like this one with from McLean of uh, amping it up in a pulpy way. Maybe like like this one in that movie uh, where Eagles Dare you have the guy who's like a ski lift expert and then they just tackle the ski lift in the first 10 minutes nah, he's, he's an just X kind Games of winning for the snowboard ride. champion and he's yeah. like we need your snowboard skills for the to be the nazis like, nobody could <laughs> snowboard that mountain <laughs> watch me this feels like i'm wearing nothing at all nothing at all, <laughs> nothing at all. All right. Uh, okay, so that's there's some random comments for Guns of Navarone <laughs> spiraling in all kinds of different directions. Would we recommend the Guns of Navarone? If you are the type of person who would buy a classic war movies box set, I think this is right up your alley. Apparently that box sets up my alley too. I just need to get around to watching it. <laughs> I'll bet you'll watch Force 10 from Navarone after you've seen this now. I don't know. They're all pretty long. <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy enjoys movies of a cool 80 minutes. Listen, just, listen. Just give him that bare bones. <laughs> to give you some perspective, the movies I've been watching lately have all been movies that are uh, in the realm of a six-year-old's ability to watch. <laughs> So I've been pushing the limits with some Studio Ghibli, which has been a nice change of pace from like, you know, Thomas the Tank Engine and stuff like that. And then you have this. And this is why I watch this at 11 o'clock at night. Um, I'll also say I think I, I, I enjoyed the movie for what it was. Um, I also no, didn't realize it, but it was actually a like Academy Award nominated movie in many aspects. It won for special effects. It I did. See that. I saw it beat out. Uh, what was it like? My dog. Oh, the absent-minded professor. Yeah. Which you know probably well deserved. Eric, did you um, say it was nominated for best picture or no? It was. Yeah, best picture. Okay. Actually, it was a pretty good year. I was looking it up. It was West Side Story one, and then some of the other uh, nominees were The Hustler with Paul Newman, uh, Gun- obviously Guns and Arrows. Uh, Judgment at Nuremberg, which I have not seen. I don't know if any of you it's, guys have seen. I've seen it. It's you know, yeah. it's a classy Oscar bait movie of its day kind of thing. Yep. And then Fanny, you know the, the classic Fanny. You guys know Fanny, right? No, nope. don't know Fanny. Yeah, neither do I. So. <laughs> so it is a recommendation for you, Jimmy. Yeah, long-winded. Uh, sure. <laughs> I mean, before we start moving into, oh, well, it's uh, 1962. Was that a good year for the Oscars? Uh, Eric? Uh, I would only recommend this movie to my dad, but I'm pretty sure he's already seen it. I'll ask him, and if he's not familiar, I'll say, well, you'd love it. Well, did you, um, did you enjoy it, though? I did enjoy it, but I know, you know, recommending things it can be tricky. you got to know your audience. So there's no one that... I know that comes to mind except for my dad who I know would be into this movie. So what if I'm going to recommend it to someone our age, you're saying I should be like, watch this in 30 years. You'll love it. <laughs> right. <laughs> when you, you know, get into your World, yeah, World War II phase. phase. The, yeah. Once you start building model tanks, this movie's going to be right up your alley. <laughs> right up your alley. 
Uh, yeah, for me, uh, I would recommend it uh, in the sense of, yeah, like kind of a limited audience. I think dads and grandfathers yeah. are, are definitely within that audience. But White yeah, I mean, dads and grandpas. <laughs> I'm a white dad, so I guess that's why well, I, I, I didn't yeah. say I didn't yeah. say white. <laughs> there you You're go. making this racial, Devin. Cut out the yeah, women, and it would have been better, right? <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, like I mean, I saw this movie in high school and was a fan of it. I particularly the the group that I think would gravitate to this is if you enjoy men on a mission movies, which I do. I don't have like all kinds of them, but I probably have like five to ten within that genre. And then if you include stuff like Mission Impossible, if you want to take it to that extreme or any kind of like, I mean, we also talked about like Ocean's Eleven and like heist kind of things that they are kind of variations on the men on a mission formula. Um, so if you dig that kind of stuff, this, I would say, is arguably a roots movie, like seeing where the genre presumably kind of started and helped to set some of the standards. And then like other movies definitely did some of it better. And more modern movies definitely have some, you know, stronger action or some things that are tightened up and everything. But yeah, if you like Men on a Mission movies like The Dirty Dozen and other ones, um, there's Flight of the Phoenix is one that I definitely want to do on the show at some point in the future. They did a version in the, I think, late 60s that I really love. They did one in the 2000s, which I've never seen. Seen parts. But then there's, you know, many other movies in the men on a mission genre especially after uh the dirty dozen was a big hit so with that in mind uh i would recommend it for uh war film fans men on a mission fans dads grandfathers devon would recommend it to white men um and then also like if you're fans of some of the particular actors like anthony quinn was a pretty big actor of his day so if you like some of his other stuff like zorba the greek and that kind of thing you're if like you, me, and you're like your peckerhead, you know. Yes. A huge peckerhead. <laughs> if you like Gregory Peck in many of his roles, this is one that's worthwhile. And we're seeing if you like David Niven and stuff, um, you might want to check it out for that. So yeah, I think it's a good watch. It's a good. It's not a good. I'm turning this on at 11 p.m. Watch. I agree with that sentiment. Uh, it's a good like Sunday afternoon watch. Like yeah. yeah. Let's let's just kind of like roll along with guns and Navarone and just kind of yeah. just gonna sit here and see what happens. Uh, where when you don't have any obligations, this might be up my alley, and I'm also trying to fill some time. <laughs> well, well, what I will say is, you recommending it to dads, and I guess it's dads with kids of a certain age, but also recommending it to people to not watch at eleven o'clock. It just it doesn't align. <laughs> Yeah. In certain people's worlds. I said Sundays. You have Sundays, Jimmy. <laughs> yes, but not when there's a small child around who would be like, wow, that guy just got knifed. <laughs> Why do they call him the butcher, Daddy? Well, <laughs> Let me tell you something about war. <laughs> All right. So, uh, so yeah, I would say uh, I, it's a good film. I own it. Um, but, yeah, like I said at the top, on the rewatch, it is sort of like, yeah, this is longer than it needs to be. So uh, just something to be mindful of. But uh, I do think it's still enjoyable. All right. So that wraps us up for the Guns of Navarone. We will. Uh, well, actually, no. Uh, Can I find this is what I need to say next. Can I find this? This one is pretty 
much all over the place. You can find it streaming, like to you know buy and download the file for from Amazon Prime, Google Play, YouTube, Apple TV, and iTunes, and I'm sure many others. Those were just the immediate ones that popped up. And when that happens, it's usually available on many, many platforms. And so basically anything that you uh, want to just purchase it from, I didn't see it come up from Netflix, um, but it could easily pop up there from time to time. It is on DVD and it is on Blu-ray. I don't think they have a 4K from what I saw, if you go in for that, but DVD and Blu-ray is out there. Yeah, look through your dad's DVD cabinet and you might find it. Yes, yeah. it It'll might be, be in the back. Yeah. <laughs> it might be buried in the back, still sealed with a sticker on it. Um, Next to a VHS copy of Speed. <laughs> De- Devin, Devin's painting the whole picture for us, giving us a good visual. Devin, Devin's looking at his DVD cabinet and just calling out what's in <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, so that wraps up for the Guns of Navarone. We will be back next time, as usual, switching gears a good bit and doing a very different film. We're going to be looking at I'm Not There, the Bob Dylan sort of jukebox musical biopic from the 2000s. And we are going to have a, uh, a crew of folks who are all big Dylan fans. So we'll be talking about, you know, Dylan's career and Dylan's career in relation to the film and then just the merits of the film itself. So join us for that.